Let's pray. Father, we come to You, Holy God. We come to Your Word this morning, and we pray that as we meditate on it together, Lord, that we be brought into Your presence, encouraged in our walk with You. In Jesus' name, amen. Before I read God's Word, um, we're going to be reading in a moment from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I want to do what all the best drama series do, which is remind you of what happened last week. And if you weren't here last week, it'll set the scene for what we're talking about um, this week. Last week, I was talking about what Corinth would be like in ancient times. Uh, and one of the things that would have struck you if you'd wandered around the streets of Corinth was not just you were in the Greek sun and not the Scottish weather. Um, it would be temples. Everywhere in the city center would be temples. And you see that if you go to any of the ancient sites today, like Rome or wherever else. Temples to every god imaginable. Apollo, Jupiter, the gods of the city, Vespasian, the emperor, Isis, Augustus, Minerva, Hercules, Venus, Athena, Diana, Zeus, Juno, on they would go and on they would go. And it wasn't just that the temples were in the center of the city, they were part of everyday life. If you went to the sports arena, there there would be prayers and libations. That's pouring out wine to the gods and celebrating. If you went into the baths, there would be statues of the gods. If you were involved in business life, often the businesses would have a patron god or whatever else that they supported in whatever guild that you were part of. It was part of everything, civic functions, child's birthday parties. Didn't matter where you went, there was pagan religion everywhere as part of it. In fact, in the ruins of ancient houses, they, you, we have found time and time again little, um, almost alcoves with where little statues of the gods would be in the house, the, the household gods that would be worshipped and, and prayed to as part of everyday life. And in the temples, we said last week, where an animal was taken and sacrificed, it didn't stop there. Because the Romans weren't fools. They didn't just burn up the, the good steak that was there in an offering to gods. What they did after they had killed the animal um, is they cooked it in the temple and then they would eat it. And they would have a family do or family round. Or maybe you were having a celebration. In fact, they, a lot of the temples would have dining halls attached. And there you would get invitations. We found invitations in the ancient worlds to come and have a meal. And not only that, because meat was really expensive. In fact, the only time many people would ever eat meat is if you got an invite to something that was happening in the temple. But then the meat that was left over would be taken and sold in the marketplace. In fact, probably all the meat that you could buy in the marketplace had been sacrificed in the temple. Now, one of the things we know in the ancient world was this sense of gods everywhere was one of the reasons that the Jewish communities in the Roman cities were apart and separate. Part of that was to do with Jewish food laws. Part of that was to do with Jewish marriage patterns. Part of that was to do with being a circumcised people and going to synagogue. But part of it would be that one thing that marked Jews out was this belief in one God, this abhorrence of anything that smacked of idolatry. We worship the one God. We love Him with all our hearts and all our souls and all our strength. This meant that there was a dilemma, because here is this new faith that has been proclaimed in Corinth, being proclaimed to Jews and to Gentiles that they would come and know this one God in Jesus Christ. 
Now, if you're a Jew, you're used to your faith making you completely separate, part of a different community, a different race even. But what does it mean if you've previously been one of the pagans, and your family are all pagans, and your business partners are all pagans, and maybe the person you're married to is still a worshiper of Diana or Zeus or whatever else it is. And here you come, and as Paul says, you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Now, theologically, we know what that means in terms of ideology. You don't believe in lots of gods, you believe in one God. But what does that do, not just to your worship pattern, you don't go to the temple anymore, you go to church, what does it do to the rest of life in a city where everything and every part of your previous identity was connected with this? Where to be a good Roman citizen was to go and pour out an offering to the emperor as a god. What does it mean? And it was an invitation, as we said last week, to have not just becoming a Christian because you believe certain things, but to the whole of life being influenced for it. And that's why the Corinthians write to Paul, and, and, and one of the things they're asking him is, Paul, what are the rules of this new game? You know, we sort of get the idea that maybe we shouldn't go to the temple and, and worship Zeus or, I, or, or Isis or any of these things, although some of us are thinking, if we go and cross our fingers and say it's a load of rubbish, is it all right then? Because that would be a bit easier. Or, or maybe if we get one of these meal invitations, we shouldn't go because people will see us going to the temple to have a feast. But, but you know, it's, it's just for the food we're going. Is that not all right? And then there's some of our folks saying, we shouldn't even buy meat because it might have been sacrificed to one of these demon gods. Where are the lines? What are the rules? And we know among Christians even today, that, that's a huge question, isn't it? Honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. But is that a rule? Does that mean we, we go to church on a Sunday? Every Sunday? Does that mean we give an hour to the Lord? Does that mean we give a day to the Lord? Can I play football on the Sabbath? You know, we, through our Christian traditions, there's been all those tensions of what does this mean? And that's to do with a whole load of things, isn't it? How does it mean to live as a Christian? And some of the, the Christians are saying, well, the gods are nothing, so we can do what we want. It doesn't really matter. We're not worshiping them. We know they don't exist. But then Paul in the previous chapter said, but you've also got to think of what the implications are on your own brothers and sisters and be guided by love. Because if you go to the temple, is it going to be leading someone else to doing something which is leading them away from Jesus, even if you feel it's okay for you? And so love was the rule that we looked at last week. But this week in chapter 10, Paul is going further than that because what he wants to do is to say something about what the dangers are for you as you negotiate how to live in a world that isn't Christian. Now, today, we don't have temples of Zeus, and we don't have temples of Aphrodite and all these things, but we certainly live as Christians in an environment which is not Christian. What are the rules? What does it mean to live in this? So, let's read the Word of God now, and we're going to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and the first 14 verses. For I do not wish you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud, and they all passed through the sea. 
they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they were all drank the same for they they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them, and their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now, these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, for it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by snakes. <laughs> Do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, He will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Therefore, dear friends, flee from idolatry. Amen. And thanks be to God for His Word. It's a bit of a difficult chapter to understand, but let me see if I can help you. can't promise I'll make it clearer, but I'll try. What Paul's doing here is he's effectively doing a Bible study. Remember I said to read Genesis? He's going to read um, a little bit of Exodus and Leviticus numbers with them, and particularly the story of Moses taking the people out of Egypt and into the promised land. And as he's doing this Bible study, he's doing it for a very practical reason. He's asking them to think, what does it mean to live for God in this place? You see, those stories in, in the Old Testament are, are not just stories that we learn in church so that we know our Bibles and that's important. They're also stories that help us work out how to live because the Bible is full of people in different situations, in different cultures, in different contexts, all trying to do the same thing. What does it mean to be faithful to God here? And we learn from the ways they did it, and we learn from the ways that they failed. And this is very important. The first thing to notice here, what Paul says, which must have been strange, remembering that a lot of the people he's writing to are not Jews. They are, they are Christians who have come from paganism. The first thing he says is, I want you to be aware, not ignorant, that our ancestors were all under the cloud. Now, that's the cloud that led the people of Israel out from, the, out from Egypt into the promised land. But just notice those two words, our ancestors or our fathers. What he's saying here is actually quite astounding because he's talking to Gentiles 
who were pagans, who had become Christians, about the story of the Jewish people, and he's saying, these are our fathers. These are our fathers. And the assumption here is, yeah, when you became a Christian, you didn't take on the law of Moses, you didn't get circumcised, you don't keep the food laws, but your identity has changed. Who you are in the world has changed. You're not one of them anymore. You're one of the people of God. And that's a whole mindset of change. It's not just believing new things. It's being a new person. It's having a new citizenship in the world, a new family in the world. You're not Jewish, no, but you are among the people of God, the people of faith, and that's to shape who you are. Now, what Paul is going to be doing in this chapter, and I've only read the first part of it. If you read the second part, you'll find a few more hints, is he's trying to work through this, this question of, of what you're going to do with these temples and these idol foods and all this meat. But what he's not going to do is what some parts of the Old Testament do, which is simply to say, here are the rules, keep the rules, do that, don't do this. Because the trouble with doing that is exactly what the Jewish people found is folks said, well, sort of, can I do it up to that point and not beyond that point? And what do you mean by no work if it's that length and it's that, you know, it becomes a legalism. And that's not what Paul's doing here. What he's actually going to talk about is who are you? as you make these decisions. And that's what the New Testament does all the time. You'll find this. It doesn't tell us what to do so much as it tells us who we are because of what Jesus has done. And that will change why we do things. And that will change what we do. That's the way around it is. Steep yourself in God. Steep yourself in this changed identity. Steep yourself in what God has done. And then work out for yourself what you should be doing. Or work out together what you should be doing. Yes, there's going to be some absolute no's, but so much in life, there isn't an absolute no and an absolute yes. Who am I and what does God want of me and my community in this time and this context? Now, this is a whole different way of thinking. This is to take people out of the paganism and not simply say, well, don't go worship Aphrodite anymore, go to church, but to start to think of yourself in a different way, almost as a Jew is a different person in a Greco-Roman city. I was uh, reading a book this week which was talking about how in the first 500 years the church grew. And one of the things it, it, it said was when somebody who had been a pagan came and said, I want to be baptized. Now today, if someone says that, I, I, I sort of say, um, well, that's good. Um, come along and we'll do an inquirer's class. And folks say, will it be six weeks or ten weeks? Do you know what they said in, in, in the early church quite, quite routinely? They said it'll be three years. Once a week, extra classes on top of Sunday worship for three years, and then we'll baptize you. Now, that wasn't because they were being legalistic or they wanted people to learn a lot of stuff. It was because of this conviction that if you were changing who you were in baptism to be a Christian, you were going to have to be reshaped. You were going to have to think differently, and it was going to take time to be reformed. It wasn't just going to be go to church, learn the creed, say a prayer, off you go. It was going to be shaping and discipleship for life. I wonder how many folk would join the church today if we said it takes three years and you have to meet with the pastor every week. Might put a lot of folk off. Or would it be actually the opposite, that it would mean that we were taking faith seriously. 
What's going on here? Well, we learned from the last week that some of the folk were saying things like, uh, you know, I know the idols are nothing, therefore everything is allowed for me. And what that means, effectively, is that they were saying, nothing needs to change. I've got this Christian head knowledge that these idols don't mean anything, so I knew what I want. Now, you see what that, that actually means. It means, I know, I have this knowledge, this theology that there's only one God. That's great, but actually nothing in my life needs to change because God doesn't have any rules. And Paul would say in the first chapter, no, first of all, the rule is love. And secondly, he begins to say something else in this story because he takes us through the story of Israel. And he takes us through the story of Israel because in one sense, when the people set off from the promised land, they were very much like those early Christians. They'd taken this huge step of faith. They had left something behind and they were going somewhere new. But at this point, they didn't have a rule book. They didn't have the Ten Commandments. They hadn't gone to Sinai yet. And they were traveling through the sea, that first generation, through the Red Sea. And they were traveling through the wilderness. And as they did that, they had to work out what it meant to follow the living God. And it's as if Paul says, we can learn from them, that first generation of faith. But if you read the book of Exodus, you'll learn one thing. they failed. Of the generation that set out with Moses from Egypt to get to the promised land, two people entered the promised land, Joshua and Caleb. All the rest didn't make it, including Moses. And the Bible's very clear why they didn't make it. They didn't make it because they didn't trust in God. That's why they failed. And this chapter is saying, look, this is written as an example to us. That's the purpose of Scripture, that we might learn the lessons of faith from the Word of God. That's why we read the Bible. And so there are several warnings in this chapter. The first warning is that idolatry and immorality are to be run away from. And the story here, if you remember, is, is the story of the golden calf. You know, Moses went up Sinai to get the Ten Commandments. Meanwhile, his brother Aaron was making a golden calf that they could all worship it. Why did the people want to worship it? Well, they wanted to worship a golden calf. And, and, and then after the, they'd worship the golden calf, they would do what they did in Egypt when they worshipped idols. They would have a bit of a party and a lot of drink and probably a little bit of, well, <clears throat> you know what? It was a bit of an orgy, really. And that's what this was all connected with. But the problem with the golden calf was essentially this. Here was a group of people who said, we don't really want what's going to come down from the mountain from God. What we want to do is make a religion that's familiar to us. We'll make the golden calf because we can shape it. We quite like calf, so let's have a calf. We quite like party, so let's have a party. We will shape our religion in our own way. And Paul says, this is a real danger for you Christians. Not because you're going to worship a golden calf because you agree idolatry is wrong. Not because you're going to change what you believe, but because you're going to shape 
How are you going to live as a Christian? By what's comfortable for you. What you want to do. That will be your starting point. And as the church works out how to live in the world, our starting point cannot be what will be popular, what will work for us, what will be a lot of fun. It has to be what will honor the Lord Jesus Christ. And the second thing that Paul speaks about as he, as he goes through this story is another thing that we find in, in the Old Testament, and, and that is um, grumbling. You ever grumble? You ever grumble about church? Do you ever grumble about God? It's amazing in the Old Testament, it, it talks about people grumbling and putting God to the test. What does that mean? Well, it means in the Old Testament terms, this people who'd come out of Egypt and they're going through the wilderness and God is providing manna for them to eat and water for them to drink and taking them to a promised land and the people are saying, oh, this is hard. I don't like this. The food's rubbish. It's bread every morning. Oh, when's the next water coming? Oh, I remember all the fun we used to have in Egypt. It wasn't all that bad. I was, I mean, we were being slaves and stuff like that. It was a bit rubbish. But, you know, there was food and there was things to do and there were golden calves and there was, there was a good time and I had a nice house. And you know what I mean? And they're looking back at what they've lost and, and, and they become disloyal. You see, this is part of the problem. They've forgotten what God has done for them to rejoice in the freedom that He's given them, the hope that He's put before them. And when you stop rejoicing in what God has done for you and the hope that's before you, and you stop seeing the joy of the Lord, then you start to look at what you had or what you could have or what all your non-believing friends have got, and you start to say, that's really what I want. What God gives me in my faith is rubbish. Where I'm going to get my real enjoyment it's having the five-star holidays and all the other wonderful things that everybody else in the world has. Now, some of those are not bad things, don't get me wrong. But do you know the difference between enjoying those things and those things becoming what you live for? And if we are following the Lord Jesus Christ, that is what we should live for. We're not excited about getting the latest iPhone or moving to the wonderful house or, or, or going off on a holiday. I love my holidays. But, you know, I, I found at times I live for holidays. Ever, anyone ever found that in life? You're living for those things? And what Paul is saying here is, if you do that, you've got a problem, because if you are really loving the Lord Jesus Christ, then you should be living for those things. You know, if we forget the joy of the Lord, then the things of God become really hard. We get up on a Sunday, and we know it's church. Why can't I have a long lie? And you know, when you, when you do that, what you're actually saying is, a long lie is better than worshiping the Lord Jesus. Because you become dissatisfied with worshiping the Lord. Why can't I go out with my friends on a Sunday? What you're really saying at that point is the joy of spending time with your Christian brothers and sisters that's gone out. Why can't I go shopping? Why can't I do all the other things everybody else has done? And what you've done at that point is you've actually got to a point in your life where the things of the world are what you're living for. Yeah, you want to go to church. You want that to be part of life, but that's not what you're living for anymore. And so you come to church when you can. 
You read your Bible when you can. You think about the Lord's things when you can because you've forgotten. But if you're caught up in the gratitude and joy of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for you, if you, when you look out at the wonderful things in the world you want to enjoy, see the hand of God and His love for you, then you do your Christian things not out of a duty where you do the least you can do. You do it out of a motivation of overwinding love. And that's the problem with the grumbling. You know, one of the things I'm always surprised that Christians don't get, I've said this before, is that there's 24 hours in a day. Did you know that? How many hours are there in a Christian day? Oh, come on. How many hours do Christians have in their day? 24. Yeah. That means this. When you do things for God, when you fill your life with things for God, you're going to have less hours to do the other things. Does that make sense? And sometimes I see folks struggling with this because what they're trying to do is everything that their non-Christian neighbor does and go to church. You can't put it all in there. Something's going to have to go out. You're going to have to make priorities. And what we should have is such a joy for the Lord that we want to do what pleases Him. By the way, that's not just for the hour we go to church. That's with the other 23 as well. But you are going to find that sometimes when things are a priority out of love, the other things become less important and fill your life. And you see, this is one of the problems with the Corinthians that what they're saying is, well, I, I'm a Christian, uh, but I can do all the other things. I can go to temples as well. I can, I, I can go and have these meals. I can, I can eat the meat. I can do all these other things because I want to do those other things. So I can just do that and be a Christian. Well, there's some choices to be made. And what Paul says in this passage is very careful. Be careful. You think you're standing. You've got this strong faith that lets you do all these other things as well. You know, I... I a really strong faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If I don't read my Bible for a month or two because I want to do other things, that's all right. I've got a very strong faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If I don't meet with other Christians for a while because I'm, 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 I'm doing other things, that's okay. When you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Friends, how many of us huh, grew up with people who had a really strong faith. We were in a youth group with them. We joined a church with them. Maybe they taught us and influenced us, but today they're not on fire for Jesus. They've wandered away. What makes you think that can't be you? Be careful. If you think you're strong and you'll never lose your faith, be careful, lest you fall. Now, the passage is clear. God is very faithful to us, but we need to be aware of that, and we need to keep putting the Lord first. And there are a very simple instruction that ends this passage in, in, in verse 14. Free, flee from the worship of idols. Flee away. You see, this isn't an instruction that says, well, you can eat the meat or you can't eat the meat, or you can go to the party or you can't eat the party, or you can go to the temple or you can't eat the... You know, it's this. Here's the issue. The temptation for Christians 
who aren't enjoying their Christian faith, aren't feeling grateful for it, aren't really worshiping the Lord, is to say, the other stuff's more fun, so how much of it can I get away with before I fall? Paul says the other way around. If you so love the Lord Jesus Christ, if you so much want to be with Him and you don't want to fall away from Him, then the question you should be asking yourself is, how far can I get away from the stuff that's a problem for me? Not how much of it can I get away with. You know, if I say to you, there's a cliff over here, what do you do? Do you say, ah, that's good, I can walk right up to the edge of it? Or do you say, there's a cliff over there, maybe I should walk over here? Do you get the principle? It's the same as we live the Christian life. No, there's not a set of rules that put a line somewhere, but there's a principle. And the principle is this, don't be grumbling, be full of the joy of the Lord. Don't be doing those things that you know are wrong and stay away from them as far as they are. Now, what that line means for you, you're going to have to work that out for yourself. Paul is not in the end going to tell the Corinthians how far they can go other than don't be idolaters. Well, that was sort of agreed. And so that is what we have to work out as we live for the Lord Jesus Christ, not to be satisfied with the things of the world, but to want to grow more and more in Him. You know, I just share this, and I realize I'm, I'm, I'm talking to be a bit long, but I just share this with you because it, it moved me this week. A friend commented of the church as we were looking at reorganization. You know, there's an awful lot of people, they just want someone to play the piano on a Sunday and a preacher, and that'll do them. No, that's great that those folk come to church. It's great that they enjoy the hymns. It's great that they enjoy the service. But does God not want so much more? Not from you, but for you. To live in the fullness of a life fully devoted to Him, excited by what He can do, overflowing with praise for what He has done. And that is what Paul is holding up in these chapters before the Corinthians with the warning that the other way just leads away from God. Now go and work that out as you live your life 